Welcome back to the program. The 1% occupy income inequality. All ideas and phrases that have become part of our national political conversation and all born of the movement that started in Zuccotti Park in Lower Manhattan two years ago. The degree to which politicians, from President Obama to New York mayoral candidate Bill de Blasio, are talking about these issues should be a sign of success. But is it? Does the two-year-old movement feel like it has succeeded? And if not, what's left to accomplish? You heard Bill Ayers on this program yesterday talking about how movements should eschew political success in favor of organizing in communities neighborhoods, schools, and workplaces. So what's the legacy of Occupy Wall Street? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Nathan Schneider. He's written about Occupy Wall Street for Harper's, The Nation, The New York Times, and The Boston Review. He's the editor of the websites Waging Nonviolence and Killing the Buddha. It is my pleasure to welcome Nathan Schneider to the program today to talk about his newest work, Thank You, Anarchy, Notes from the Occupy Apocalypse. Nathan Schneider, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. You were involved with the movement from the very beginning. Talk a little bit about that and give us a sense of what its goals and objectives were from the very beginning. Sure. Well, I first encountered Occupy Wall Street in one of the first planning meetings for what uh, would become the occupation, and this was in August of 2011. You know, so something was in the air. You know, the spirit of the Arab Spring and the and the uprising in in Wisconsin was very much uh, on people's minds. Lots of people in that meeting where I showed up in a park in New York City uh, had been traveling around the country and around the world, going to these different places where uprisings had been happening. They'd been thinking about what was happening around the world, and they wanted to join this global movement. And it was actually only one of the planning processes for a uh, for an uprising in the United States that I was uh, reporting on at the time. And when I got there, there was a lot that still, a lot of work that still had to be done. There wasn't a single, uh, a sense of, of, of clarity about um, about what they were going to do and what they uh, were there to do. Adbusters had, uh, which is a magazine, had mm-hmm. made a call, uh, an email, uh, a Twitter hashtag, but not much more than that. And so it was for this group to decide what it was going to do. And the decision was not to pursue a policy proposal, not to pursue a single demand, but to create a kind of momentum, to create um, something that would inspire people all over the place to rise up in their communities, to build occupations, to rethink what politics meant to them. And I think in that, they really succeeded. Was it something, though, that could succeed over the long run? To be about empowerment as opposed to demands seems like something that was going to run its course without demands or something else as part of it. Oh, absolutely. And you, you have to see, recognize that these people saw themselves as part of a much longer movement, and they still do, uh, many of them. And, um, you know, they, they saw themselves as being at one stage in a broader movement, where it was a moment where what really needed to happen was something to kind of shake people out of their, out of their delirium and tedium and, and, uh, and sense of helplessness. You know, the, the financial crisis had been several years earlier, and yet there hadn't really been a kind of appreciable response to the way in which uh, Wall Street had been bailed out and Main Street had been left out, you know. And, um, and, and so I think the first stage, people realized, was a kind of performative stage. And that's really what Occupy excelled at, was that 
sense of performance, of capturing attention, of of changing the conversation, as is so often said. And now what a lot of those same people are doing is going out into communities, uh, working on uh, on issues in particular, and um, trying to win campaigns and building community power. Um, you know, and there have been examples of this throughout the movement. When there have been clear and winnable demands, people in the movement have definitely made demands, such as in labor struggle, struggles that they've uh, uh, supported, um, in ending stop and frisk in New York City, which is, you know, well on the way toward uh, toward progress. Um, you know, when there is, when it's a time to make a demand, and when there's power built up to 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 make sure that that demand uh, can be met. Uh, there's no uh, hesitation in making one. Given the empowerment that obviously was part of its success and the degree to which it has become, as you detail it, bifurcated in so many different causes by so many different people, has the movement itself played out at this point, the larger movement? Well, I think I think it's hard to say. You know, when you look back at the history of social movements, you know, they don't happen in three weeks like we, you know, were kind of taught to imagine uh, in the coverage of the Tahrir Square uprising in uh, in Egypt. You know, they happen over a long period of time. Even in Egypt, you know, that uprising was the result of years and decades of organizing, and the consequences that are playing out now in Egypt are really the consequences of years and decades of organizing on behalf of different groups there. So I think, again, you have to see the kind of Occupy Wall Street moment as just one stage in a broader process. And um, I think that moment has definitely petered out. You know, we know that 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 moment is gone. But the question is what people are going to do with it. And the next stage can't look like that stage. It has to, I think, look more like building community power, you know, building political networks, um, you know, building the kinds of uh, structures of, of self-preservation and of resistance that will enable uh, the, the concerns of the movement to uh, to become a reality. How much of it is about building community at the grassroots level, and how much does it desire to involve itself and have success in the mainstream political process? Well, I think a goal for a lot of people was to was to um, of this movement was to was to shift how we think about what politics is, you know, to redefine it from just being the options that are given to us by the two parties to being a more kind of community-driven um, uh, uh, endeavor in which in which we build power from the ground up. So it, there's often been a comparison made um, between Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party, you know, and the Tea Party, of course, happened, uh, you know, in the years before it and, and with very quickly was able to elect politicians through the Republican Party. Um, but that was never really Occupy's objective. That was never really something talked about in planning meetings. And the reason was perfectly clear. I mean, you looked at the Tea Party candidates, and they were all being lavishly funded by the very corporate sponsors that uh, Occupy was so concerned about. So, And, and, and any attempt to elect somebody um, to high office would require that kind of sponsorship. So that didn't seem like the right route. I think a much more apt comparison when you, when you look on the right, uh, on the political right in this country, is the role of churches. I think Occupy, you know, was aspiring and continues to aspire towards something more like that community-based work, which certainly affects the political process and certainly affects um, how political power works in this country, but isn't necessarily just about electing politicians. It's about something, you know, more grassroots, more community-based. Has it changed the political narrative in many respects? 
I think it's absolutely changed the narrative. You know, we've seen uh, that in the way in which Obama painted um, uh, uh, Mitt Romney as a one percenter during the during the last election, and in New York, we've seen that so clearly in the um, way in which Bill De Blasio swept to victory uh, in the mayoral race as soon as he started using uh, the kind of language and practices of Occupy Wall Street, when he started getting arrested in protest, when he started talking about race and stop and frisk, and, and the way in which economic inequality plays out in racial terms in our city. Um, you know, that those were issues... Um, that were really brought to the fore by Occupy, and his success in that race, I think, depends a lot on the ground that Occupy laid. On the other hand, it's very unclear whether he or Obama have the political capital to um, to, pers- to follow through on any of that rhetoric. And so that's what I think that's the work that remains to be done. Talk a little bit about the youthfulness of the movement and the degree to which those young people have continued to stay engaged, and of course, many have fallen away. Yeah, you know, it's it. I've seen many different kinds of stories playing out. You know, so many people were activated through this movement, especially young people. You know, and the t- subtitle of my book is uh, "Notes from the Occupy Apocalypse," and and I, I use that word in the kind of original Greek sense, which is an unveiling you know, a revelation. And I think for so many young people, uh, they experienced a revelation and unveiling, both of the depth of inequality in our society and injustice, and also the possibility of working for change. And for some of them, you know, I think they got kind of a raw deal. They came in with the sense that this would be over in three weeks and we'd have a revolution and that would be it. Um, having watched the kind of coverage of, of uh, what was going on in Egypt and imagining something very similar playing out here. Um, but I think for a lot of people, what happened is they got a real political education and they realized that change happens much more slowly um, through much more kind of painstaking work than that. And um, and so, so many of those people who before were doing things very differently are now devoted to working for justice, are working in community organizations around the country on issues like um, the environment, fighting fracking and the Keystone Pipeline, um, uh, confronting police brutality, doing labor organizing, especially with um, some of the most vulnerable low-wage workers around the country. Um, you name it pretty much in ju- justice campaigns around the country right now, uh, you're seeing them full of the networks that were built in the Occupy movement. Was that a mistake that the Occupy movement made, that it didn't latch on to something that could be accomplished, even within the broader context of all the things you're talking about, something that could have been accomplished more quickly to keep these young people involved, to show them some immediate success, to keep them involved for the long term, for the big picture? You know, it could be, and I think a lot of the people who have really stuck with it are doing so because they did experience a sense of success. You know, they did experience a sense that, um, that, that, that they had changed the conversation or maybe through Occupy they had become involved in a labor struggle that was successful. Um, you know, that, that, that they had, that they had accomplished something along the way. And when you go around the country, when I went around the country to the different, um, uh, encampments that I was able to um, to go to and meet people at, you know, in each place there was often some story of success. It wasn't that they, you know, overturned Citizens United or that they transformed, um, you know, something about the structure of our political system, which you know is ultimately very much the goal. Um, but um, but they they made some step along the way. Maybe they got a resolution passed in their local. 
um, city hall or legislature, and 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 those are really empowering victories, and and um, and and I think it matters a lot. It's a it's a good question that you raise um, for people who had their hearts set completely on revolution in three weeks. You know, I think they have come away with a lot of disappointment. What is left of the original Occupy movement, other than the remnants that still exist in in Zuccotti Park, barricades and the like? Yeah, there are these physical remnants. I mean, it's amazing, the charging bull and uh, a a statue of a bull that kind of symbolizes Wall Street and the financial district is still surrounded by barricades. But I think it's a a tremendous testament, the way in which these so many justice campaigns right now are being driven by networks formed in this movement. I mean, that really can't be underestimated. And when you look at um, movements in our history, like the civil rights movement, there have been these kind of passages where, you know, there's a kind of initial um, uh, moment of excitement and energy and media attention. And then there are quieter years where there's a lot more uh, need for the kind of slow grassroots work that's a lot less sexy in the media but is really, really important and, you know, will make all the difference in what comes next. What was the impact, particularly on the young people involved, in the way authorities and the police reacted and responded to the Occupy movement? Yeah, I think that's one of these apocalypses that I was talking about. You know, it, it, I think it was shocking for a lot of people to see the violence in New York, especially of the uh, New York Police Department in Oakland. Um, you know, the the response varied in different in different cities, but um, but in general, the the there was just a sense of shock that this kind of violence would be wielded against nonviolent protesters, and for a lot of people. Um, you know, for some people that became a very kind of traumatic experience and, and, you know, some people I know left New York and never want to come back because they just can't get that violence out of their minds. Um, for other people, um, it turned them into constructive responses. You know, it helped them realize that, okay, they're seeing this violence in front of the cameras, but actually there are communities around our city who are experiencing police violence every day and it's not on cameras. And so they got into working on confronting that violence. So they turned it into something constructive. And and I think, for instance, it's a huge testament to the effect of Occupy that so many um, people who weren't experiencing the effects of the stop-and-frisk policy of our police department, especially white people who are disproportionately unaffected by it, um, directly at least, uh, now know about it and are now you know uh, uh, aware of this issue and deeply concerned about it. Did the Occupy movement make a mistake in eliciting the kind of police response that it got? Was there anything in the movement or what happened in Zuccotti Park that in any way set it off, set off or justified in some way the overreaction that it, that it engendered? Well, I don't know if anything justified that kind of overreaction. I mean, it was really astonishing. Um, you know, the, the the protesters were treated not like people expressing speech, not like people holding, you know, a, a nonviolent um, protest, but people who were potential terrorists, potential rioters. Um, anybody who knew anything about the culture and workings of this movement knew this wasn't in the cards at all. Um, but that's the way the police treated it. Um, and that was extremely disturbing um, uh, in terms of the future of protests in this country. Um, on the other hand, I think there was a way over the course of weeks and months when um, 
when the initial acts of police violence brought a lot of attention and energy to the movement, there became a kind of um, addiction to that. Um, you know, there was a, an addiction to confronting the police and to, you know, getting arrested and to um, perpetuating that dynamic and continuing to, um, you know, to, to, to bring it on. And um, and that ended up turning away a lot of people. It ended up um, making making it harder to participate, making it more exhausting. Um, and I, you know, I think it would have been worthwhile to consider other tactics. You know, on the other hand, these were people who were under constant police pressure. It really can't be overestimated the way in which they were they were always being harassed by police all around them, um, and it, it was um, you know kind of perceived as a fight for for survival as a result. Was there any sense of any sympathy or any understanding coming from law enforcement? In some cases, yes. Um, you know, one of the most popular people uh, uh, in Zuccotti Park who would show up uh, often was Captain Ray Lewis, who was a, a retired Philadelphia police uh, officer. And uh, he would come and he would articulate a vision of what the police could be. He would come wearing his police uniform and um, speak about uh, how much he admired and honored the protests that was taking place, and also how mu- he admired the people who were serving as police, and that he saw a, a different kind of vision of what police officers should be, that they should be protecting free speech, they should be protecting this kind of act which is enshrined in our Constitution. That's what they took an oath to protect. Um, and so he presented a vision that seemed very reasonable and very credible and, and exciting to a lot of occupiers. Whenever he would spoke, he would get he would speak, he would get standing ovations. Um, uh, you know, and so in that way, um, you know, I think there was a potential for, you know, a real kind of friendly relationship. But the behavior of the New York Police Department made it very hard uh, for the actual relationship between occupiers and the police to be uh, anything but negative. What were the concerns on the part of the original organizers as the Occupy movement was copied in various places around the country, not always with the same success and not always in the same high-minded spirit? Well, uh, I think, for one thing, there was just a sense of excitement and a sense of um, you know, appreciation that people were were rising up in their own ways. There were a lot of discussions about different kinds of tactics that people were using in different places, and for the most part, um, the feeling was that um, you know people in local communities should should um, you know should build their occupations in the way that made sense to them. And what was shocking to me was the extent to which they were really so similar. You know, I, I remember at one point going to a, a very small Occupy encampment in a conservative town in Central California, and um, and folks were uh, were copying the General Assembly uh, format for the meetings um, based on reading the minutes from the New York Assembly. You know, and it was just so surprising how similar they were, how similar it looked and felt, and and how similar the whole experience was. Um, even though these were none of these people had actually been to New York, um, so it was really it was. I, I think people were mainly uh, excited to see how um, what they were doing was not being, um, you know, simply being copied, but was being adapted for different places in different ways, um, even with these kind of cultural similarities. Who were the individuals and personalities that were the organizers, the leaders, the key people in the movement? 
Well, there were so many. You know, it was it was, and and it would change over time. You know, in in one project, maybe a, one group of people would um, become prominent and visible. In another project, it would be another group. Um, it was very hard to keep track of, and people tried to keep it that way. You know, if one person really became visible or or especially prominent, they would be encouraged to, you know, as the term was, step back or um, you know step down for a little bit and you know let other people. Um, have the limelight, and this was part of what was going on in movements all around the world at the time. You know, when Mohammed El Baradai, a prominent Egyptian, showed up at Tahrir Square, uh, kind of to pr- offer himself as a leader, um, the people said, "No, thank you. We don't need that." You know, in all of those uh, uprisings of 2011, 2012, there was a sense that this is something that the people would do as the people, and I think there was a real symbolic power in that. In in all these movements from Tunisia to Egypt to Barcelona um, and Madrid to Wall Street, there was a call for democracy. There was a, a real demand that we that, that we recognize the ways in which our governments, which pretend to be democracies, really aren't, that they're run by corporate power, and that we, the people, um, want to show them what real democracy looks like. And part of that, in the minds of many of these people, was a sense in which you know, everyone should be a leader. Everyone should take responsibility for leadership on some level for something. And uh, that was part of why there was a kind of concern to prevent um, one or two very visible people from hogging the, uh, the stage, so to speak. On the other side, was there a common enemy, a, a personification perhaps, of, of what the enemy and the objective was? Yeah, you know, I think it was mainly these symbols that that Occupy, I think, really pointed to. Um, it was hard to mistake what the enemy was when you have an occupation in the financial district called Occupy Wall Street, when the um, charging bull, which is such a symbol of of financial power in in New York, um, was was so commonly used in the imagery. There is this, uh, uh, you know, the target was the power of corporate. Um, elites of corporate institutions, the power of, of a kind of corporate way of life in which profit is the underlying objective uh, throughout our society. And this movement was calling to clean up government, to clean up society, to change the way we do our economy and how we operate um, in such a way that human needs are put before Greed. And I think when anybody hears the word Wall Street on whatever side they're on, whether they're 99% or 1% or whatever, you know, they think immediately of that kind of profit-driven way of life that we inhabit, and that really isn't working for so many of us. Was it their concern ever that that idea, that that concept would almost be too abstract? When you certainly look at the Arab Spring and protests around the world, Usually the enemy or the object of the protest had a face, had a name. It was less abstract than, than Wall Street, per se. Yeah, yeah, that that's definitely a concern. You know, for a lot of people who got involved in Occupy, who really supported it from afar or participated up close, for instance, they're very concerned about campaign finance reform. They're very concerned about this kind of very abstract idea that there needs to be um, more of a, a wall between um, between 
corporate wealth and our political system to enable democracy to flourish. That's very hard to get people behind, especially people who are most vulnerable uh, in, in our society. And the choice that a lot of people made is rather than to identify some enemy like some leader or some, you know, politician of some sort. Um, the choice is really much more to, identi- to, to um, focus on the issues that are most of concern, the, the manifestations of Wall Street power in our communities. So, you know, so for instance, um, with the killing of Trayvon Martin, that became a real issue, um, not in order to focus on Trayvon Martin so much, but because the law that kind of um, uh, legalized his killing had been pushed by the same corporations and that it, and that his killing was so resonant for so many vulnerable people who are victims of police violence regularly in this country. Um, so, so they were interested in pulling those, these abstractions, not by pointing in, not by pointing at a particular person or at a, per, a particular kind of famous image, but by pulling them into our communities and pointing to the ways in which the things that we're experiencing every day tie directly back to Wall Street and are really about Wall Street and um, and and building that up as um, as the basis of the struggle rather than just pointing a finger at a leader um, who's easily replaceable, as we're seeing in Egypt. So the people that, that were the organizers of Occupy Wall Street two years ago or a little over two years ago, as they look back on it today, do they have a sense, you think, of, of having succeeded? You know, I think there's a lot of mixed feelings and a lot of soul searching going on. You know, I think I think for a lot of people, um, they feel a sense of of having done something great, have been a part of, you know, a, a real chapter in in uh, American history. Um, but I think they also recognize that the significance of that chapter depends on what they do now, and and really maybe most importantly on what the rest of us do now. Um, you know, it's, it can't just be left for the people who participated in Occupy. Many of them are just exhausted and, and overworked and, and um, just trying to survive in this economy right now. Um, I think, I think uh, a lot of the hope for the future um, depends on, uh, on uh, what people who weren't involved in Occupy do with um, the kind of messages that Occupy brought us, the, the, the stories that Occupy brought us, the, the slogans and the, and the rhetoric that the movement brought us. Um, so I, I think they're kind of anxious about the legacy of what they were part of and, um, you know, sometimes hopeful, sometimes frustrated. Nathan Schneider, his book is Thank You Anarchy, Notes from the Occupy Apocalypse. It's just out from University of California Press. Nathan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, and thanks to your listeners. Thank you. I really appreciate the chance to uh, share these stories. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.